Biz skirts are back. Hollywood fashion icons are rocking Basiaco chic, and Vogue magazine is all over it. No future for Reform Judaism without Israel, says Reform Rabbi Amiel Schwartz, as 100 of his fellow rabbis denounce Israel in a ridiculous public letter. You know, I'm reading that to you. And Jews, well, we love a good suit. Master Taylor Yossi Tiffenbrunn, a.k.a. Rabbi Taylor, is here to talk about the fascinating yet challenging business of bespoke, luxurious menswear. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your talented and humble host, Hanala Music, coming at you from the land of Israel, episode 97. It's been raining in Israel for over 24 hours, which means I have a leak in my living room. <laughs> and the sidewalks are covered with smushed pink petals from the freshly bloomed Judas trees, whose sweet flowers I just discovered are used by the Arabs and Druze that live in northern Israel as a condiment. Well, if that's not a random piece of information, I never thought I'd know. I will tell you that to see a beautiful pink blooming tree on the corner of your block at 7 o'clock in the morning while you're driving your kids to school, well, it's a sight to behold. And it reminds me how lucky I am to live in this beautiful land. Honestly, I, I get a little sad for the trees and the blossoms when it rains. Those poor, delicate flowers, they're getting pummeled like the Israelis. <laughs> we are the beautiful blossoms, and the Arabs are the torrential storms. Except that unlike water, they are useless. That's right. All right, so this week I had a influencer breakfast. It was on Thursday morning. Thursday morning, I took a bus to Yerushalayim. I took a train down to Mamila, headed over to the David Citadel, and was greeted by hundreds of enthusiastic American tourists, part of the JLI learning program. Chabad has a program called the Jer Jewish Learning Institute, and the Chabad Shluchim were here with their communities, with their kihilais, with their balabatim, ready to tour. You could see who was the tourist and who was the rabbi. <laughs> the rabbi was more focused on getting all the lunches underneath the bus, and the tourists were slathering on sunscreen, ready for a day of adventuring. Um, I took some selfies with the shluchim, who were excited to see me, who told me that they listened to my podcast. So hello to all of you listening, who I ran into. Um, I really wanted to join you. I did. It was pulling. It was pulling at me. It was calling to me. The adventures were calling my name. But alas, I had a delicious five-star breakfast waiting for me downstairs in the hotel with a terrific group of women, including Danielle Renov, Yafa Palti, Naomi Nachman, uh, Melissa, Melissa, Marissa, Melinda Strauss. Melinda Strauss, that's who it was. She's adorable. And we did reels, and I mean, they did reels, and I filmed them dancing. I was like, I'm not partaking in that. But we had a beautiful, delicious five-star breakfast. And then we went upstairs for a beautiful, delicious five-star lunch, legit. And then we were invited upstairs to the Robin Suite. We got to go upstairs to the David Citadel's most beautiful, luxurious hotel room and see the view of the old city of Mamila, land of Israel, the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. Jerusalem was there gleaming and bright right off a penthouse hotel room that I will likely never stay in, <laughs> at least not pay for full price. Also in our group was the Israeli national champion, Bidi Deitch, who ran the marathon on Sunday, along with a whole group of girls who flew in for just one chesed. And uh, when I asked her what her plan was for tomorrow, considering I know that she's constantly training, she said, my goal is to win, but run the slowest that I can. <laughs> I was like, that's exactly my plan. Except my plan is not to run at all. <laughs> I'm not even running slow. I'm just not running at all. But yeah, Beatty was there and Liba Spirit Fit from Instagram. She was on America's Ninja Warrior and they were 
taking selfies and climbing the building and scaling the walls and security came and they were freaking out. But that's just a side story. I guess you have to follow everyone's socials to keep up with the shenanigans that our Jewish athletes were up to um, in that fancy hotel room. But the fact of the matter is we had a great day and we got some great swag. I'm grateful. I don't take these things for granted. Nobody owes me anything. And when the opportunity arises to have a beautiful morning with a group of terrific girls, I am all for it, especially if we get free stuff. Well, I guess I could tour another time. Anyways, while I was in the hotel, the rest of the country was doing what it does best, preventing itself from seven terrorist attacks a day. A day. Unfortunately, there was another terrorist attack this weekend. I will give you the rundown of it. It's actually an American citizen named David Stern. He is a former Marine. He was driving through the town of Huara, uh, with his wife and three children in the back of the car, the Palestinian terrorist shot at him 20 bullets. He was shot in the head. He was able to shoot back, get himself out of the car and into the ambulance himself. That's what kind of gibor, that's what kind of hero we're talking about here. This attack comes less than a month after the tragic incident in Huara, the Arab city of Huara, where two brothers, 21-year-old Halal Yaniv and 19-year-old Yagel Yaniv, were killed. So... Huara is a cesspool of terrorism, lest you think otherwise. The second attack, as reported by Khan Stemesre News, by Khan 12 News, a German tourist, you have to hear this, Gerald Hetzel was lynched, okay, in Nablus yesterday. And young Arabs started knocking on the windows and sabotaging the wheels of his car. The PA police were unable to help, and luckily, he says, an Arab Israeli led us in his car and then let us into it. This is a problem that the Palestinians are taught to hate. <laughs> no. I'm sorry that I'm laughing. You have to hear this sound clip. You have to hear this sound clip without any sense of embarrassment. He tells the journalist that he told the Palestinians, I'm not Jewish. I'm not your target. <laughs> we felt very, very afraid. I felt really, really endangered. I would, did not know if I would go out there alive because they had so much hate against us. It was um, a few times in uh, Judea and Samaria, to Ramallah, to Hefron, also with rented cars, and I never had any issue there. So I did not expect this to happen, that we were literally attacked by a mob of uh, young, angry people from the streets. And we tried to explain them in English that we are tourists, that we are from Germany, we are both not Jewish, so we are not a target for them. But uh, they didn't understand. They didn't even listen really to us. They just screamed at us. And uh, they started first uh, to bump with their fists against uh, the, our car. And then they uh, took some traffic signs and rocks that they were throwing against us. From Germany, we are both not tourists, so we are not targets. Well, what can I say? Does it give me a little bit of sweet satisfaction that a European German should have this experience? Why, yes. Why, yes, it does. From Germany to Paris, Betalel Smotrich, the leader of the Religious Zionist Party and Haver Knesset, member of Knesset, he spoke in Paris this weekend a little bit of common sense that is sorely lacking in today's politically correct climate. I'm glad he had the courage to say what needed to be said. Uh, he said that, the so-called Palestinian people are a modern-day invention. Yes, that's right, a fabrication that's less than a century old. You heard that right, folks. There's no such thing as a Palestinian people. It's lies, it's distortion of history that's being perpetuated by BDS and pro-Palestinian organizations. But that's not all, folks. He also pointed out that he himself is a Palestinian by birthright. His grandfather is a 13th-generation Yerushalmi, that is a real Palestinian. And his grandmother, who was born in Matula more than 100 years ago to a family of pioneers, well, she's also a Palestinian. 
That's right, folks. The truth is stranger than fiction. He went on to educate his audience at a private, not-so-private memorial service for prominent right-wing Likud activist and Jewish agency board member Jacques Kufel on the characteristics that define a nation, history, culture, language, currency, and historical leadership. And guess what? The so-called Palestinians don't meet any of those criteria. They don't have a history, they don't have a culture, they don't have a language, they don't have a currency or a historical leadership to speak of. But wait, there's more! He dropped another truth bomb when he revealed that the Arabs, who are currently living in the land of Israel, well, they are not actually indigenous to this region. They arrived at the same time as the Jewish Aliyah and in the early days of Zionism. The bottom line is the people of Israel are returning to their rightful homeland after 2,000 years of exile, and the Arabs who don't like it are inventing a fictitious people and and claiming fictitious rights in the land of Israel just to fight the Jewish people and the Zionist movement. The truth should be heard loud and clear in the LC Palace, he said, in the White House and everywhere else where lies and propaganda are being spread. The truth will win, my friend, says Finance Minister Batal Smutrich, who just spoke it. That's right. The last small piece of Israeli news comes from Professor Alan Dershowitz. He was on this podcast. He said that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial reform program does not endanger Israel's democracy and may even enhance it. The rare respectful discussion, which I watch, took place online with Professor Eugene Kantorovich. He is a very esteemed scholar and international lawyer. So he said that the whole situation in Israel is not about democracy. And the uproar over judicial reforms is just an extension of anti-Israel or anti-Netanyahu animus and not focused on the reform program itself. And the more I read about it, the more I realize that the real problem is not the question of judicial review, but the existence of two opposed and maybe irreconcilable Israelis. So we have our work cut out for us, and our job is to do the homework and find out what judicial reform even means. You can Google it. There are some amazing graphs and websites out that explain it quite clearly. I cannot explain it to you, as intelligent as I am. I simply, <laughs> I am aware of my shortcomings and explaining to you what judicial reform is and why it matters. Well, that is above my pay grade. But whatever the case is, don't believe everything that you hear and recognize that this is just Israel letting out some stress because it is stressful to live here. And I think any shift, any change, um, anything unexpected or new is enough to provoke all that trauma, all that PTSD, all it just, you know, it all comes back. We are such a traumatized nation, whether we came from the Western lands, whether we came from the Middle Eastern lands. Whatever the situation is, the Jews always came here running away from something. So I understand the unrest. I understand the discord. I understand the stress. But as proud progressive and Democrat Alan Dershowitz explained, everything is not exactly as it seems. Listen to this. And I have to tell you, I've spoken to a lot of the people who are involved in these demonstrations, Americans. They have no idea what's going on. They have no idea what judicial reform means. You know, I've been doing this 60 years. I've never seen a protest about judicial reform. There were no protests when the United States uh, packed the court, uh, wanted to pack the court. This was all about trying to undo this election. Uh, This is all about uh, Netanyahu. This is not about judicial reform. And so you're not going to get compromise over judicial reform. Uh, because both sides uh, are winning the debate with their extremes, and so uh, we're not we're not having a sensible approach. And and the real problem is that it's destroying Israel's credibility. The people of Europe, what do they care about judicial reform? If we had, if all the things that are being proposed, well, almost all of which I oppose, if all of them were enacted, 
Israel would be like Canada or England, and in some ways like the United States. This is not about democracy. Most countries in the world today do not have judicial review. Most countries in the world today have judges appointed by the political power uh, of the government. Most countries in the world give immunity to their uh, soldiers. So what we're talking about is Israel becoming like many other countries. I, I don't want that. I think Israel should be better than other countries and should be a better democracy. But this has nothing to do with Israel being a democracy or Israel operating under the rule of law. So, yeah, the protests against the new government policies are definitely self-righteous. They are not righteous. And uh, if you want to point fingers, well, you could say perhaps the new government should have slowed down and not changed direction so abruptly after years of political stagnation. But as far as not being democratic... Well, Israel is as democratic as Canada now. So if you're living in Canada and you're comfortable, well, you should be supporting Israel's present government. Those are just the facts. You know what else is a fact? You should sign up for Tovito because Tovito is the number one downloaded Jewish entertainment app for families around the world. Tovito.com is all you need for your family's entertainment needs. And yes, it is a need. Sometimes you just need to allow your children to watch. But you don't want to worry. You don't want to worry what they're watching, how they're watching it, what's popping up on their screens, or what they're watching after they finish that video that you put on for them. Netflix is an abomination. But lucky for us, for less than a subscription to Netflix a year, you can have Tovito. And Tovito has hours and hours of absolutely terrific, entertaining children's content that's both educational and fun. My son loves Tovito. I kid you not. He broke our TV. It was an accident, but regardless, he's been spending a lot more time watching Tovito on my computer, and he's happier and calmer, and he doesn't get tired of the content. There's always something new and fresh to watch. The videos are created professionally so that your kids are happy watching them over and over again. So what are you waiting for? Buy the gift that stands the test of time, the gift that keeps giving for your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews, Tovito.com. Use promotion code SQUEEZE10 for 10% off. All right, two great stories today. One is straight out of the Vogue magazine and one is straight out of the Mad magazine because the reform rabbis are mad. And they put it into a letter that I'm going to read here, a very dramatic, emotional letter. So here we go. A little extra dramatized for the sake of entertainment. In the midst of chaos and destruction in the holy city, blood flows in the streets and buildings burn in Gaza. Amazing. The first sentence of the letter is talking about the buildings burning in Gaza <laughs> because of their terrorism. Yeah. All right, let's continue. Violence spills over into the cities of Lut and Haifa from the Arabs. And each news refresh and falling rocket brings new images of terror that leaves us in tears. We weep for the pain of the injustice, for the indignity that the Israeli military and police forces enact on Palestinians daily, for the complicity of our own Jewish community. What Jewish community? Your community is barely Jewish. But let's continue. The racial reckoning that American Jews are facing is only the tip of the iceberg. Is that a threat? We must confront the reality of the situation in Israel and Palestine. Okay, those are literally the same place. That's just the matter of the fact. There is no Palestinians. There's no Palestine. Israel, before it became a country, was called Palestine. Uh, but I digress. And acknowledge that our tzedakah money and political advocacy often perpetuates the same violent suppression of human rights and apartheid in the Palestinian territories. So they're threatening not to give tzedakah money. Got it. We need to give ourselves permission to cry, to mourn, and demand better. Like the activists who are saying Kadesh for Hamas. Is that what you mean by mourn and demand better? <laughs> As future leaders of the Jewish community, oh yeah, we appeal to the heart of our community to find their tears. 
Make those tears. Force those tears to tap into the empathy that is necessary to feel and experience the harsh reality on the ground. We can only make change when we start from our tears. And we must replace our watered-down prayers for peace with tears of heartbreak. (laughs) This is great. So everybody needs to cry. Bring on those tears. No matter what. Show up with your signs and yell and scream and sob and screech and pray for a change. No, my bad. Don't pray. They actually say, replace your watered-down prayers for more tears. This is great. This is really great. We must tell the messy truth about Israel and vote for leaders who won't continue to fund violence. You mean like the Europeans and the Americans who send money to the PA and support terrorism in its entirety? Are you talking about them? We must direct our giving to support those who build peace, not so hate and violence disguised in the name of justice and Jewish continuity. You guys are preaching to the choir. You are literally the problem in America. The spiritual and ethical soul of the Jewish people still stands, and we have the capacity for redemption. Not if you don't keep Torah and mitzvot, but we condemnation of violence are not enough. We need something bigger, deeper, raw, and more transformative than that. We need to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. When the Temple Mount is burning because the Palestinians are starting fires and garbage cans, when the alleyways are home to violence, yeah, because the Palestinians are attacking Jews in their homes, in their alleyways, of their land. When children lose their parents, the parents lose their children. Yes, when Jews are targets of terrorism. Thank you, reform movement. We have a chance to make a difference, to keep making that choice every single day. Well, you're a bunch of fools. That is pretty clear. And that is what Rabbi Amiel Hirsch, a very popular reform rabbi, is waking up to, a painful awakening that his dear friends, these 100 names on the bottom of this letter, are supporting the Palestinian community. And now he's in a pickle. Because good morning, Chasha. You can't be a Jew without Israel. You cannot support terrorism and maintain a Jewish identity and a relationship with your Jewish brothers and sisters. And that's what Mr. Amiel is discovering um, in an op-ed that he shared with the Jerusalem Post, where he wrote, For years he wondered, how could it be that the founders of Reform Judaism would simply abandon the concept of Jewish peoplehood? Surprise, surprise, you're supposed to be part of a nation, a actual thriving Jewish nation that has a Torah and laws and a purpose and meaning. And it is not just a social justice free for all. So yeah, the future of Judaism is Jewish peoplehood. And those who abandon Jewish peoplehood are like leaves falling from the tree. Uh, At the same time, he also encouraged and praised the hundreds of thousands of people protesting in Israel, uh, noting that they were the proportional equivalent of 12 million Americans. He also had sharp words for the members of the government. He said, I will not sanitize supremacists, extremists, and religious fundamentalists. They distort Judaism. Well, that's rich coming from a reform rabbi, and they're an embarrassment to the Jewish people. Again, same sentiments. But he knew this. He knew this. He wrote an article in Tablet Magazine back in 2021, and he said very, very clearly that He knows 22% of American Jews, one in five, believe that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians. And what have the Palestinian, sorry, (laughs) Freudian slip, what have the reform rabbis been doing? Well, they've been defending Palestinians from the pulpits. Like Rebetzin, what's her face here? Rabbi Angela Buchtal, who still has a job despite once telling her congregants that they should pray for the Palestinians as well as the Jews during a period of conflict in Israel. Um, she's still preaching from the pulpit, as is Rabbi Hirsch. And this Shabbos, he, his speech was heard around the world. I actually downloaded it, um, read it over. Most of it, he's basically criticizing the government um, very harshly 
and encouraging the uh, democracy and marching in the streets and, and the revolution and that whole thing. But then again, he also says, we don't have a future as Reformed Jews in the U.S. if we aren't anchored in Jewish peoplehood and in Israel. And at the core, Zionism is the liberal philosophy of the Jewish people. I don't know. To me, it sounds like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He says that he gets hundreds of messages, not only from liberals, but from Orthodox Jews who tell me I speak in their name, even though I'm not a halachic rabbi. While I'm not anti-halacha, I don't wear a kippah. We have music at our synagogue on Shabbat, and I don't separate between men and women at prayer. However, that is exactly the point. We have to unite the forces amongst American Jewry that believe in the core values I mentioned. So basically, I believe in nothing. I don't keep the Torah or mitzvot. But now it's starting to really bother me that my congregants don't identify with Israel anymore. Okay. Amazing. This reminds me of a joke about two rabbis that spent the entire night arguing from the scriptures, trying to dispute God's existence. And they disputed God's existence to one another. They absolutely convinced each other that God doesn't exist. The next morning, one rabbi was surprised to see the other walking into Shul for services. I thought we agreed there's no God, he said. He said, yeah, but what does that have to do with anything? Uh, make of it what you will and since you guys love to laugh another quick joke which might offend people by an orthodox wedding the bride's mother is pregnant by a conservative wedding the bride is pregnant by a reform wedding the rabbi is pregnant and by a reconstructionist wedding the groom is pregnant (laughs) all right next let's talk fashion your jewish mora is in vogue magazine thanks to Mati Khan, who wrote an article that has quickly gone viral called It's Not Modest Dressing, It's the Torah Teacher Aesthetic. And this is in Vogue magazine. So let's talk about it. Let's explore the unexpected fashion trend that's been taking the world by storm. Have you noticed denim skirts and elbow covering tops paired with sneakers and long boots everywhere lately? Well, that's how I dressed in high school with a biscuit, long sleeve denim shirt, (laughs) and some boots from Aldo. And that, my friend, is the Torah teacher aesthetic. It's officially a thing. In Jewish high schools, teachers are apparently known to dress in a particular way. Brown wavy hair, denim or pleated skirts, black and white tops, sensible shoes, and neutral colors. It's a look that's unmistakable to anyone who's ever attended a Jewish school. However, the Torah teacher aesthetic is now a popular trend in the fashion world. Jennifer Lopez, Katie Holmes, Bella Hadid, all spotted wearing denim skirts with a brand called Kahit, Kahiti, Kahit, Chait, I don't know, K-H-A-I-T-E, producing them in bulk. Remember the biscuits that had like a drop waist and they came in every single color and everyone wore them, even though they were super not foddering? Well, even on the runway, designers like TB and Ferragamo have incorporated the Torah teacher aesthetic into their collections. But what is the Torah teacher aesthetic, I wonder? Well, it's a style that's rooted in Jewish modesty laws and practicality for teachers. It includes knee-covering skirts, elbow covering tops, leggings under dresses, minimal accessories, and sneakers with tights. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's like the art teacher dressing, but with fewer beaded necklaces and no fuchsia colors. It shares some headlines with cottage core, but its vibe is cooler. I am so glad that we don't look like a bunch of Amish people from the Chadwick's catalog. At least for that. The Torah teacher aesthetic is not just about clothing, but it's an attitude behind it. To really pull it off, fashion enthusiasts have to be vigilant and ensure that their outfit maintains a certain level of sophistication while still adhering to the modest dress code. It's about pairing a long skirt with an oversized sweater or a tank top with an oversized denim jacket, creating a nonchalant and schlepper vibe. I mean, that's, oh, sorry, fashionable vibe. When I, when I dress like that, everyone called me a schlepper. 
when Jennifer Lopez dresses like this, it's fashionable. Just go figure. So the next time you see someone sporting a denim skirt and a plain white top and boots, you'll know that it's not just a fashion statement, but it's a nod to the Torah teacher aesthetic. Who knew that taking inspiration from Jewish modesty laws and practicality for teachers would be fashion inspiration for Vogue magazine? You gotta love it. Speaking of fashionable clothing, the American Dream Mall has a new department store specifically for from clothing called The Address. The American Dream Mall in East Rutherford, New Jersey has a one-stop shopping experience featuring the most sought-after modest brands in the world, including, oh my gosh, I'm going to cry now, um, not Zoya. <laughs> Zoya is not on the list. And if you don't know what Zoya is, you are not lucky enough to live in Israel, including Seventh-day Shine, A. Soliani, B7 Active, Bits, uh, Test Collection, Bird New York, House of Lankry, Impact Fashion, uh, Lamayim, Luna May, Maka Majesty, Maya's Place, on and on and on. Udell, New York, Waterdale Collection. Um, they have all of these brands in this specialty department store. And while you shop, your kids could do whatever they have in the mall over there. Skiing or sledding or ziplining. From what I understand, it's one of the most impressive malls in the world. So that's a great solution for Americans. You can now shop modestly at the address. What's the address? I don't know. It's just called The Address, an American dream mall. All right, my next story is for the animal lovers. There is a new app out called Vetted. For $24 a month, two Israeli sisters, Maya Sapochnik Kadina and Natalie Sapochnik, well, they are going to help you take care of your Jewish pets. And if your Jewish pets are anything like the Jewish people in your family, well, you need on-call medical care 24 hours a day. <laughs> so these sisters who grew up in Los Angeles, um, parents are Israeli. They made Aliyah after high school. They pursued degrees at IDC in Herzliya. They were in the army. And then they came up with an app that can basically provide pet owners ongoing home care, dental, skin, and grooming issues, digestive care, mental health, and hip and joint mental health. Seriously? All right. Not my dog, not my business. Mental health, hip and joint care, simply by downloading the app, subscribing, and voila, that's it. You have trusted advice from a source that is in Google. They have trained veterinary professionals available 24 seven. Um, you can ask questions like, my dog has been having a lot of anxiety since I went back to work. My Frenchie's a little territorial. Uh, my dog's stool doesn't look as firm as usual. My dog's been having a lot of anxiety. My cat hasn't eaten for two days. Should I take her to the ER? And Maya and Ashley, well, they're going to help you with a 24-hour concierge team. By the way, this is not an ad. <laughs> I know I'm reading it like one. But this is just pretty cool. You get free emergency exams, $170 to $200 a visit in case your dog swallows something. $100 allowance at the vet for yearly checkup and vaccines. Um, a, the, an easy-to-use mobile app, um, your pet's digital health records, so on and so forth. And yeah, you can even get reminders to brush your dog's teeth, play with them, or whatever it is that you need to be reminded of when you have a pet, which I don't, and I'm not complaining. All right, let's move on. What else is going on? Ivanka and Jared Trump were in Israel. Ivanka wearing a beautiful red dress, came to the wall, prayed, took a picture with her family, went out to eat in Tel Aviv, and went back home. And that is the entire story for you, in a nutshell in a gold-covered, diamond-encrusted nutshell. And the timing couldn't be better, because from what I understand, Miami Beach, my hometown, is completely out of control, thanks to spring break. Now, when I was growing up, Miami Beach was safe. We did not have to close our doors. But now, we have a curfew. The Miami Beach police announced a curfew from midnight Sunday until 6 a.m. Monday, with an additional curfew likely to be put in place Thursday through next Monday, because of the party animals that are taking over Miami Beach, unruly and excessively large crowds. Let me tell you something. Miami Beach residents do not want this. They don't want spring break in their city. They don't need spring break in their city. It's too rowdy. 
Um, it's difficult for the police. Things get out of hand. People get shot. And between Yeshi vacation and spring break, it's impossible to, to, to get out of the house anymore. Unless you're Ivanka Trump and you have a private airplane and everything's perfect. But for everyone else, it's, it's not a good situation. And yeah, if you're listening and you're from New York, go home. By the way, I have not been banned from Twitter all week. I'm very, very proud of myself. One of my tweets is actually doing very well with 21.4 thousand views. It's actually a retweet from a Palestinian who shared a picture of an airplane that looks like a Palestinian flag and she wrote, one day, inshallah, who wants to be on the first flight? And I wrote, welcome to Palestinian air. No Jews, no gays, no infidels, no alcohol, and women are checked in with the baggage. (laughs) The comments on underneath are actually funnier. Free cocktails for the first time travelers. Molotov cocktails, that is. Um, Let's see what else. And no landings either. Uh, this could be an amazing ride and straight to Gehenim with no one left behind. Palestinian Air, you may get to another destination, if at all. Palestinian Airlines, we're going through security is completely unnecessary. Da 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 da, the world's first zero star airline. Ba 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 ba, instead of seatbelts, each seat comes with a suicide belt. <laughs> ah, that's really funny. Um, will the highlights be grenades rolling down the aisle? I think it's safe to say there'll never be a Palestinian Airlines. But let's talk about traveling and flying. What do you wear on a flight besides your pajamas and a sweatpants sweatshirt combo? Well, depends who you ask. If you ask Jesse Tiffin Brown, he will tell you that there is something very specific to wear at every single occasion. And that's why he is a world-class tailor working at a Williamsburg. One of 10 from a Chabad home, Yassi followed his dreams... Um, He wanted to go into women's okachor. He eventually went into men's tailoring. And if you've ever seen a Chabad rabbi with a long beard, wearing purple trousers, mustard yellow socks, and a green jacket, well, that is Yossi Tiffenbrom crafting beautiful garments, bespoke atelier in Brooklyn, New York, rabbi, tailor, dad, without further ado, the Rabbi Taylor. Yossi Tiffenbrom, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Sure. It is an honor to speak to a graduate of the pinnacle of sartorial excellence training, an elite tailor of the future, Sir Joseph Tiffenbrom, is it? Yes. I got it right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Were you the only Tiffenbrom in Seville Row Academy? <laughs> yes, I was. I was the only one. Yeah. I, I could imagine. So can you just start off by telling us where you grew up? Um, a little bit about your Jewish education and how you went on to be such a fancy schmancy tailor. And then we'll get into the specifics of what you do and how you do it. Sure. So I grew up in London. I was actually born in New York and raised in London. My my father's English. My mother's American. And from a young age, I went to yeshiva. I went to school in Stamford Hill in London um, and to Lubavitch School. But I always grew up with this fascination or passion for clothing and um throughout my like yeshiva education i always had that in mind that at one one point in my life i would create garments create clothing when you say fascination do you mean like you were drawing sketches as a kid of clothing you you could don't be embarrassed like was that going on (laughs) Um, at one point, it was yeah. At one point in in yeshiva, I was I was actually sketching, um, but it was more. I think growing up from a young age, it was more the idea and always like enjoying to to wear clothes and how to wear it. And obviously, at some point, I mean, my my parents were buying me clothes up until well, at least taking me out shopping or picking up stuff for me until at certain point, maybe like 
like 10, 11, I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to have a say. And I really did. I'm laughing because my, my seven-year-old will go to school in his pajamas unless I right, tell him to, right, to right. get but dressed. So it is a nature. My daughter, uh, she's seven. Um, and already, I think, like, when she was six, she was like, you know, certain dresses she could wear, she wouldn't wear. New dresses that we buy, she won't wear. So she has a strong opinion of what she wants to wear. And I had that at, at maybe like at nine, ten. And, and then it grew. It, you know, grew naturally. And I always took care of my clothing. That was a very important thing for me. Um, went to shawl, came back, changed into the old clothing or into like a more casual trouser and shirt or, and put, put the suit away, hung it up, made sure it was back in the suit bag. And same thing for shoes. Um, and it's shoe trees. and It's so interesting because I grew up in a home where we were six girls. So you would think we wouldn't pay attention to what my father was wearing, but my father was impeccable. My father had a pants press, and every single night his pants went into the pants press. But you took it to the next level because here you are, you are one of the top bespoke tailors in New York City. I mean, my father sings your praises. He says you have hands of an angel. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because I know that it's so much more than just, I grew up liking clothes and I was into clothes and now I'm a tailor. You're not just a tailor. You're a legendary tailor. You have impeccable taste. You have a great eye. I mean, I've seen some of your work, some of the linings you've done in capatas that have caught my eye. <laughs> like, I know who made that suit. And I also understand the fascination you have with the structure of clothing because my parents are both they both appreciate the art of a good tailor as a matter of fact when I was a kid when I was a kid I have memory year after year after year memories of my mother taking all of us five children to the tailor to the seamstress and every single yomtif she would make us clothing not just make us clothing make each of us the same outfit the same pattern fabric a different um, style a different pattern so we had our customized dresses. We did it for years and years and years. So I remember how important that was to my parents. Anyway, back to you. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get into the thick of it. I do really have a lot of questions. Sure. You went to this, was it a school? Is it an institution? What was your official training to become a tailor? So I started off, uh, I was actually, I was in Shlichus in Singapore. And I wanted to go for it. I wanted to make it happen. Um, I was in Alitara in, in Brooklyn and I went to Singapore and Shlokas. And, you know, I tried all different ways to start kind of to push forward. Um, and at one point I studied interior design, you know, thinking that it would be more appropriate for me um, now as a rabbi or now, you know, and also like I really enjoyed the Shlokas and it was like becoming a big part of my life. And, but also wanting to continue this dream of creating clothing, I actually wanted us to create women's clothing. So, so that was the, the struggle. I wanted to create um, evening gowns and, and, you know, like really high end 
um, clothing. I would. Was that something you had to speak to about with like a mashpia? Was that something that was like weighing heavily on you because you thought it could be conflicting to perhaps a from life to be involved in women's? I knew it could. I knew it could be conflicting. Um, so I was trying to find ways to to make it happen, um, but I was struggling. So I studied interior design, and I was bringing interior design into my fashion. And at, at some point, I said, that's it. I have to go for it. And I interned, actually, at Harper's Bazaar, uh, the magazine, um, under the editor-in-chief. And, and then I came back to London, and I went knocking on all the doors of Savile Row, asking for an apprenticeship, still with the idea that I'm going to do women's high-end with the inspiration from Alexander McQueen. One second. When you say knocking on doors on Savile Road... So I'm imagining like in France, they have these couture fashion houses where there are these big tables and everybody's out cutting and sewing. And the, is that what we're talking about? That environment? Um, maybe a little different. It's, it's more like in Savile Row, you have these, these tailor shops that some actually you have to ring the bell still. Um, you can't just walk in, but you ring the bell, you knock on the door. Downstairs is where, where the suits and garments are made. Upstairs, it's it's well, it's it's actually cut upstairs generally, and and then made downstairs. But upstairs is more to see the clients. It's beautiful leather couches and and you know a nice, really nice shop. And the head cutter or the the manager would would be standing there and taking clients. And and I went knocking on all the doors, uh, trying to see if I could apprentice. Um, Alexander McQueen started off there. Um, he did a few years at the beginning of his career. And that was my idea to go there through getting getting a real tailoring background. And then I was getting a lot of no's and I kept going. I got no, no, no. And they didn't take apprenticeships. There was a school that they were associated with in the East End of London. You know, so I applied for that, took that course, realized that it's not going to get me anywhere. And at this point, though, you were a professional tailor. In other words, you knew how to sew. No, no. You can construct no, the suit. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I had. Wow. So you were a real. You were a real beginner. I was a real beginner. Um, I took some courses in sewing, and but I had no background in tailoring. So I applied for this school. I did six months of training there. Then I came back to Savile Row and applied for the Savile Row Academy, which one of the tailors. Um, has his own school uh, because there's no way you can learn tailoring with 25 students in a class. Uh, it, they were training. It was, it wasn't done like properly. It was, you know, until you wait for your turn to, to ask if this is correct. It's like, you know, well, tailoring is something very personal. I feel like it's a, something a father teaches their son. A right. lot of times, like we know in the Jewish communities, tailors were from certain families. It's kind right. of, uh, a craft that you slowly teach by watching. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a really a process. It's not something you can quickly manufacture. No. That's literally the antithesis no, of what no, tailoring absolutely. is. absolutely. It takes years and years and years. So I applied for this academy. Um, he remembered me when I came around originally. And I, you know, originally when I knocked on that door, it was like something like 12,000 pounds, which was like I couldn't afford that. So uh, I went for the other route, but now I'm coming back. Wow. Um, he remembered me. He took me, uh, like, uh, accepted me to the academy. And then shortly after, took me on as his apprentice. 
Um, so I did both academy and uh, apprenticeship in, in the French shop. Um, and it was, it was, you know, it changed my life. Obviously I, I started really appreciating and loving the craft of tailoring. I think fulfilling the need of creating and what I was looking for, right. Putting aside the whole idea of creating women's clothing. And I, I, I suddenly fell in love with, with creating men's clothing um, or any clothing, but the way it's done on Savile Row, the true, the right way to uh, like, you know, the, the old craft and the way it's always been done for hundreds of years. And, um, and that was, that was where it started really. It must be so, so disappointing for you in a sense. I don't know how, how much you care, but you are part of a generation who prefer sweatshirts and yoga pants instead of properly constructed, tailored, designed to last beautifully created clothing that's not from Shein. You've been riding against the tide from the get-go. I was actually listening to a podcast and they were talking about the proper dress for davening. And the question becomes, if people no longer wear hats, do you have to wear a hat when you're davening? Because the purpose of wearing a hat is to wear what you would wear in front of a dignitary. You're standing in front of Hashem. But if everyone wears sweatshirts with hoods, at what point is a hood not good enough? To greet, I was going to say, to greet, uh, you know, I have a client that's that's going to be accepting a, I think it's the OB from, from the king shortly. And you you still have to wear a morning suit or a lounge suit. You know, you don't have to wear a tail, you know, the full tails, but you, could, you have to wear a lounge suit. You have to be really appropriately dressed. You, you can't wear a, a, even a sport coat and trousers or... You know, there is a certain dress code, and I'm right. sure the the same should apply, really. Well, in the from world, we we don't spend thousands of dollars in custom suits every day, but we do wear our finest clothing on Shabbos, and we do represent um, the beauty of Judaism should be reflected in our clothing. We do try to represent Judaism by how we dress. You know, we don't show up our worst dressed it's something that we take in consideration and that's why i think there's always been a respect for tailors and a fascination with jewish tailors Uh, there's so much i want to get to can i just tell a joke though before we even get into anything because i have such a great tailor joke okay so a man goes to a tailor to try on a new custom-made suit the first thing he notices is that the arms are too long no problem says the tailor just bend them at the elbow and hold them out in front of you see now it's good he says, but the collar, is, it's up against my ears. He says, it's nothing. Just hunch your back up a little, a little more. Okay, that's it. Perfect. So he says, but now I'm, I'm stepping on the cuffs, says the man. He's already desperate. He says, no, bend your knees, okay, and, and it'll take up the slack. You know, there you go. Look in the mirror. The suit looks, it's perfect. So twisted like a pretzel, the man goes out into the street uh, Reba and Florin see him walking by. Oh, look, says Reba, that, that poor man. Yes, says Florence, but what a beautiful suit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The point is that a good tailor can make anyone look good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting point because that's, that's, I'm sure you're going to get into this, but that's what bespoke, bespoke is we have all sorts of, I mean, we, all human, everybody has like different misshapes, you know, drop shoulder, you know, one shoulder lower than the other, round shoulders, a, a prominent hip or or you know tummy whatever it is and the jacket the garment or even the trouser has to flow in harmony with the body so you know if, if someone has a bigger tummy the jacket is gonna because it's just a cloth at the end of the day right it's two-dimensional 
and the cloth has to go around these set balance with these uh, these body uh, you know your your different um figuration so bespoke is creating the garment so that it kind of molds around and enhances the proportions where they might not be that perfect um and we think it's only the person and, and i do have very interesting clients that and a lot of our clients that have you know shoulders lower than the other or more extreme making a suit for someone that's a short person or um a musician that naturally because he plays trumpet so his arm is a lot forward it's like you know because he's always holding that trumpet but then we all have like in a way like me personally i have one shoulder lower than the other and if these idiosyncrasies yeah, I, you know, if I picked up a jacket off the rack in a shop, um, it would be off. One side would be off very, you know, very much off than the other. And it's all about cutting and molding and crafting it so that it Do really people flows. know this? Because when you go out into the world where they manufacture suits, you know, off the rack, most people probably don't even realize how how great they could possibly look women's clothing in general are more forgiving but mm -hmm. a lot of times men just look like squares like just straight up squares and you know that it could be improved so we're talking about obviously very discerning customers so let's just jump right into that arena we're not even going to pretend that you know this is for somebody who's just like wants a little pick-me-up a custom tailor suit is a process and i want to get into that process because i think people have no clue yeah. And I want them to understand, first of all, the the talent and skill that goes into it and just the assortment of choices that there are when it comes to creating something that's essentially just a suit. But, you know, there's the colors and the fabrics and the fits and the styles and the linings. And, you know, even more than that, I was, you know, Googling a little bit because I'm not such a big maven. The different fabrics, especially as fabrics get more and more technolo technologically advanced, I mean... There must be some incredible fabrics that you've worked with. So tell us a little bit about the world of custom suit making. And if you need it like a little more direction, start with essentially a customer coming to you and being like, listen, this is my schedule. This is my routine. This is my budget. I could afford you. I need a nice wardrobe here. Where do you start? Okay. So a customer walks in. Um, we get to know the customer a little bit. Um, spend some time talking, discussing um, his hobbies, his things he likes. And then we start kind of, well, if he's looking to build a wardrobe, we would start with the staples first, right? So he needs, person needs like, depending, I guess it depends also on what he's, what his, um, what he does for a living or, you know, um, if it's someone in the art world, he might have a different, he might, he, he would have a very different wardrobe than someone that's a lawyer or banker. Um, it's actually crucial. Yeah. So, so we all have different, you know, needs and different suits that we need to wear and, and different positions in life that we could go a little bit more, um, forward, a little bit more colorful or ones that we self expressive. Can't. Yeah. Or, or, you know, if you're an associate at a law firm, you can't dress like the partner. All these things you have to take into account. But if you're a plastic surgeon or a doctor that owns his firm, 
or his his practice, you're you could dress. Colorful. Then you could wear then you could wear a kerchief in your pocket like you're wearing now. Then you could wear a bow tie. <laughs> you could wear different different jackets. I mean, if you know if you own your business or if it's um, if you're an artist, a musician, an actor. It's 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 you know it's very different to to your lawyer. Clothing you know. makes the man also. Yeah. Clothing does make the man when yeah. you show up professionally. Right, but I you mean, but you also want to be sensitive to to your surroundings. That you know, again, if you if if you're a lawyer in a law firm, you don't really want to stand out. Yeah, you want to dress well. But I was just gonna say, in an expensive bespoke suit, you'll stand out, but it'll be subtle. Right, you'll stand out in the way it's cut. Um, you'll be noticed for paying attention and for putting that effort in to get something that's made for you because it looks like it's made for you. But you won't make that statement that here I am, um, I have this power suit. So there's a very fine line. So depending on what the what the person, what he's after, you cre- create the suit. Yeah, we create. Or you have, or you have a guy like my father who only goes to Shul Shabbos once a week. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, he doesn't leave the house. Right. Right. So then he needs also a very specific suit that's good for the weather there. Right. Right. So yeah, right. you have to know where the per- okay. But talking about where the person lives, by the way, so that will take you, let's say, into the fabrics. Mm-hmm. How does it work? You, you have a book where you show them the fabrics. How does he get to see and feel and touch and decide what he wants his suit made out of? So we work with different mills, and the mills send us books of fabrics, like swatches, every season. So now we've just gotten in um, new books for spring, summer, or in the last month. And you get it, you know, a little bit, you get it pre-season, so you can start working on the on the garments before the actual season. Because um, the suit takes two, three, four months to make. Um, I have another joke about that. Remind me. <laughs> So, so, we, so we choose the we choose the fabric um, again based on his climate, based on the occasion. Remember, there's also wedding clients. There's also so it really getting to know what it's for. Choose a suit. We choose the cloth. We design it together. Um, remember, it's bespoken, sp- spoken for the customer. It's not my suit. I'm not the one wearing it. It's the customer, and we have to make it with his his ideas, his comfort. And his style, yeah, I have I have a sense of style, a sense, a taste that I'm gonna kind of project a little bit or or guide, and and obviously I'm the one cutting it and making it. But the the comfort is very important. You you're making it for the customer. You know, if a person wants a more tailored fit rather than a you know skinny trousers you know, or tight, that's what I'm making it for. I'm making it for him to feel good feel comfortable especially if you're sitting down most of the day I and mean, when more mature person when i say more mature someone that's in his 40s 50s or he's wearing the suit but he you know he wants to look good he wants to look sharp but he wants to feel comfortable so you you, you have to take that in mind and not project you don't also you don't want the the suit to wear the person you know what i mean yeah. you don't you want the person to to shine in their clothing and yeah, take yeah. over them unless that's the look they're going for. I mean, if I was a guy, I'd probably get like a cape or something super cool. Exactly. Like I'm one of those, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll get those. the music yeah. note linings. Yeah. Yeah. We have totally. Those. You know, I, I make, I make um, trousers for certain clients that are very wide at the bottom. You know, you might have this young customer that would look at him and say, Oh, where do you make those trousers? Those are like really old style, you know, looking, but actually they're handmade but made with the client's intention and design and made for him. 
So that's what spoken right. for. That's what bespoke means. Right. So now he looks at all these fabrics and you kind of pull together a palette, I would imagine. So is that something you kind of sketch out the, the vision you have for the suit and the pants and that kind of thing? Like, how do you present it to them so they can see what they're getting? So a lot of times we have clients that really understand or know what they're looking for, but for the customers that don't, or that we're guiding them along from the beginning, sometimes I need to sketch it out. Um, we have the fabrics with the colors there. Um, so we'll take inspiration or we'll draw it out or we stand him in front of the mirror, see what color, if the shade looks good on him or not, if the pattern looks good on him or not, if he's a taller person, if he's a shorter person, if that check is not going to go, is going to make him look shorter make him look too tall, you know, so all that is about balance and finding that, that right balance for him. Then we'll kind of lock that down, um, choose all the designs and pockets and vents and lining and buttons and uh, style lapel. Um, that whole, all those style details. And then... Do most people care? Do most people care about specifics, like where the collar will be or, you know, where, how many buttons? Or is that something that you kind of just present and say, this is a good idea? So some do, some don't. You know, I, I have clients that that have been making clothing, you know, some with other tailors around the world for years. Uh, I have clients that, their fathers took them to tailors, like you, like you mentioned. So they, you know, they'll tell me what buttons. They'll tell me (laughs) what buttons and they have such an appreciation and such a uh, understanding of tailoring and the craft. They collect their own fabrics. So they bring me the fabrics and they, and they know what they want. And then you have, and then you have clients know that I have to guide them along. And we, you know, I suggest the buttons and, and I suggest them they, yeah, and they, they bu- they're buying into my taste and style, and that's why they're here. So we have that. We, we kind of finish that, the details off. We take the measurements, have a few drinks along the way, um, <laughs> take a deposit, and then I see them for a fitting. That's what I want to get into now, the actual process. And this brings me to my next joke. Um, Itzik works in Israel's high-tech sector. And before a business trip overseas, he takes his pants to a tailor in Yerushalayim, a guy named Epstein. But after he comes back from his trip, Itzik forgets all about his pants. Years go by until one day Itzik reaches into his jacket pocket and to his surprise, he finds the tailor's receipt. So he goes straight to the tailor, hands him the receipt and says, Epstein, are my pants still here? Yes, of course, the tailor replies. They'll be ready next Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) Tailoring takes time. This is not a, a sheen order that you do in 24 hours. I've right. seen tailors rush. Mm-hmm. I've had many, many gowns made over the years. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, tailors have different styles. Sometimes they're overwhelmed. They have a lot of work. You come, they're not ready. They're busy sewing last minute. So everybody has their different, you know, work ethic. Do you have an official timeline? Do you tell your customers it'll be ready on this and this date? Or are you just kind of going with the flow and then you'll let them know? <laughs> so it depends. You're like, no, we're efficient here. No, it, it, it actually depends on the client. Because if it's a wedding client, there's a date. If it's, a, if it's an occasional suit, it's a, there's a date. A lot of times there's a date. Then I have clients that it's, you know, I make them the suit, they finish off, they give me another fat piece of fabric. Or it's always, there's always something in the pipeline or multiple or a lot or 
and and I have clients that it's not they have plenty of clothes. It's not they're looking to to add, they're looking to create, you know, to to add to their wardrobe or have something new constantly. So there's no, you know, it's 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 a relaxed deadline, but it's a seasonal suit generally. So you're looking to have it on time for the season. But they've they've come to you ahead of time and they understand and appreciate the time it takes and they want their tailor to be happy. I have one of one one client says, I want my tailor to be happy. So you take your time, you do your thing, however it comes out, when it comes out, I'll you know, I'll be there. So there's both um, there's both to that. Yeah, there's both. But sides. can you handle the urgency? Can you sew pull an all nighter sewing if something needs to be done by tomorrow? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you've it's, been there. It's, it's, I've been there. It happens. Yeah, you know, try not to pull too many all-nighters, but thank God I love what I do. And I'm able to just sew away, cut away. Yeah, you get, I get tired sometimes, but I'm able to pull through um, with some right. coffee and some good coffee. Um, but well, when I'm, you're yeah. doing what you love, which I do also, and, you're ex- and you have an opportunity to express creativity, it really is it's joyful. So I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you appreciate that, but let's get to some more specific, maybe more challenging questions that perhaps you've never thought about as a tailor. But now that you're on the weekly squeeze, well, we're going to squeeze you here. Do you have a philosophy that is your own about tailoring and maybe tie that into like, how do you ensure that every single suit that you create is the highest quality? Yeah. So I have a very fine attention to detail, um, and I expect it, you know, to be a very high standard. So the way I cut, the way we make, there is a process, and we keep to that process, those guidelines and those rules in in tailoring. Um, so that's you know that's that's what we do here. We pay attention to it. Uh, we make sure it's right. We don't take the final payment until the client's happy. It could be sometimes it's a few fittings, sometimes it's a bit longer. But we'll make sure it's done and to, first of all, to my liking and, and, and of course, to the client's liking and expectations. Um, that's the highest priority, obviously. Right, right. Well, your reputation precedes you. So I can assure you that you're living up to your standard. Um, I actually read somewhere that Ralph Lauren said, because I was looking up Jewish, famous, famous Jewish designers, and of course he came up. People ask, how can a Jewish kid from the Bronx do preppy clothes? He said, does it have to do with class and money? It has to do with dreams. I don't design clothes. I design dreams. So do you feel like when you put on the suit and the guy walks out feeling like a million bucks or when he's trying it on and he's, you know, smiling in the mirror, do you feel like you're creating elevated experience for him in the world because he's wearing a suit that really represents who he is as a man? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's for us, it's like, yeah, we're creating suits, but every suit we create, we're not creating a line. In fact, unlike Ralph Lauren, which is a great inspiration for me, he's always been. And I have something on, on Ralph Lauren I got to tell you after. But here we're creating individual pieces for clients. And that is the goal. And we build the fittings for the, for that goal. So the client has to feel like that he could go to that meeting or whatever it is. And he has all the confidence he needs uh, and feels really good and comfortable and has style and, and, and feels, feels really good about himself. And that's the goal. It's funny because I had a client that was sitting in a cigar recently, sitting in a cigar lounge and with one of my suits on. And um, he sees at the corner of the cigar lounge, 
Ralph Lauren sitting there smoking a cigar by himself. And he didn't want to go up to him. You know, he's, he's a banker and he didn't want to go up to him and, you know, say hello, you know, celebrities or famous people. You don't want to kind of disturb them. So he continued doing what he was doing, uh, smoking or whatever. And at the end, or he was going up or Ralph Lauren passed by and commented on this suit and said, really nice suit. Where'd he get it from? And he said, oh, I have, you know, some you know, tailor in, in, in Brooklyn. Some Jew, some Jew made it for me. It was funny. It was very special because Ralph Lauren's always been really an inspiration. For me, Ralph Lauren is like a tastemaker. He's, it wasn't just the clothing. It's his sense of style, his color, his... Um, also very his, refined, very yeah, consistent. Yeah, yeah. There is, there is art and everything. Yeah. Very representative of, of America also. Yeah. yeah. He created Interesting. That, that sense of American style. It was, yeah. But you said you wouldn't do a line. You're not going to do a line. Maybe Is that at what some I heard point. You say? No, no, I didn't say that. No, I said, unlike, oh, okay. unlike what we do, we're focusing right now on, on, you know, clothing for each individual customer at some point. Um, maybe we'll see about that. We'll see what happens, but. Uh, let me tell you something. I think there's a shortage of in the world modest, attractive, quality women's clothing. Like when I was growing up, we went to Lord and Taylor. We went to Sims. I know Sims is like you know long gone, but I remember when we were looking for some great designer stuff, and we would find my grandmother would find the cashmere sweater. She'd be in heaven. She has tons of her Hermes scarves. Like quality, quality. Everything was about quality. And she used to go to Montreal. She used to drive to Montreal eight hours to the seamstress with a piece of silk that she found. I mean, that's like the the importance, the emphasis that was put on clothing. And that's not because it's contradictory to being from. If anything, it's completely in line with being from because so much about who we are is connected to the things that we do physically. And, and I, I, I teach music classes on Zoom, what Jewish music is, what it is, and I talk about culture. And I always say culture is clothing, music, and food. So when you respect Jewish music and when you eat kosher food and when you dress like a Jew should, you are preserving the Jewish culture. And the word culture comes from the word kol taira culture defines is completely interconnected with the whole Tyra because our dress, what we eat and our music and what we take in defines who we are as Jews. Mm -hmm. So I know that's a very lofty thought, but I, I completely understand why it would be a schus, let's say to create suits that make people feel like a million bucks because then they can do their mission here on this earth, whatever, you know, I'm not saying they're going to go hiking, but, you know, if they want to run for president, they could run for president in your suit. Yeah, um, <laughs> I agree. Can you, can you tell me about a particularly challenging project that you worked on and how you pulled through or didn't pull through? So we had, I'll tell you a story, a great story um, that happened a few years ago. I had these young, um, young guys called me up and said, we make clothing, or we're starting to make clothing for special needs or children that have um, needs that they can't just buy it off the rack. And and we have this young boy that's uh, is having his bar mitzvah in five weeks, and a serious case of cerebral palsy. And could you help us out? Uh, it was a very busy time at the atelier. It was, I don't remember the date, but we were we were very busy. Five weeks, a 
child that is you know strapped to the to his wheelchair um like how was i going to do that it was difficult for me because uh, how could i say no but at the same time how could i add this this like workload to 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 my team and and, and you know and, and, and also with its limitations, with its yeah, limitations, limitations doing something had. on that time frame will i be able to achieve it and i was leaning towards like kind of towards it a felt no impossible to feel like it was just impossible at that time to 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 make it happen and um you know over the weekend i was seeing a client it was a friday morning um they called thursday or was it sunday i'm not sure and i'm measuring a new customer actually and we're talking discussing and i brought it up to him i said you know i just you know told him what was on my mind and he turned around and he said you know they're coming to you because you're the only one that can make it and um, you're the only one that could make this young man's bar mitzvah make his family um feel special and I mean, it's the only child as well and you're just like why couldn't they come earlier i know it's me <laughs> but why couldn't they come earlier <laughs> but you know these young these young men were actually like separated from the family meaning like they were doing their own thing and they were looking out to make have something made for this child and so they were the ones approached me not the family and the client tells me you're the only one that can make it happen you're doing it and i'm paying for it and the pain the that part as well was was a problem because you know what was i going to charge them they didn't know how to come up with the money either and that there was so many parts in it and he's like you're doing it and i'm paying for it and wow it was it was it was very inspiring it was like you know it was another jewish person that has no idea had no idea this this other person this family it, it was very special. The whole process was very special. You, we actually have a staircase to my atelier, which so we actually use the local Chabad uh, house, which is like five minutes from me. And um, so there's a lot of moving parts, and I, we fit him there on the table, and we made it in a way. Do you have a photograph? We do have photographs of of it, but I wasn't sure if the family. Um, um were I, I never shared it on on social media you did share the cutest picture the cutest reel by the way that got so, so much attention of your little son at a wedding recently you made him a suit oh, I made him a there's nothing cuter than a little boy in a impeccable suit i don't know what it looked like by the end of the night but it was so cute <laughs> it, it actually looked great he, he wore it well he carried it off very well and um it was in great condition and yeah, we'll try to get him to wear it again. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably gonna have a little mannequin here and, and dress it up because that that jacket was like this is like a men's real like men's dinner jacket, and I'm not deviating in any way for a child. Just I, shrank I, it I, down. <laughs> I just shrank it down, like like fully handmade, exactly how I would make it. And actually. No, I didn't put pockets. I didn't put out of pockets. And also, uh, I don't know if it was a fine detail. I did like the, so it was a dinner jacket, Prince of Wales check, um, and with a velvet lapel, double-breasted. It was gorgeous. And, and your kid's of, so cute. Thank you. And because of the proportions, I felt like the velvet buttons in the front just look odd. So I did the same buttons of the fabric in the front 
with the velvet buttons on the cut on the sleeve. So that was, and then I skipped the pockets because I didn't want the proportions too much black. And um, so were, yeah, we were you matching? Up. I didn't see what you wore to the wedding. Were you I matching? A, I, wore a pata. I wore a kapata. I wore a kapata. You're off brothers, the hook when yeah. you wear a kapata. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but let me ask you, let's get to the juicy part now, because I know people listening are thinking, oh, he sounds like such a nice guy. I could use a new suit. Let me call him. And I'm thinking these suits cost more than you make a month. So let's talk tachlis. Why are they so expensive? I know that sounds like such a silly question, but can you break down for people without, you know, just the facts of the matter, the, the range that um, fabrics cost, the time, the hours that go into hand sewing something, um, the exclusivity of it all, and why they end up costing so many thousands of dollars? Because I know people might be a little snobbish about it. Like, who needs such a fancy suit? Why does it have to cost so much money? It's just a scam. It's like shaitals, you know, just wear horse hair. <laughs> right, right. But shaitals, you don't wear hair, right? <laughs> no, you don't. My husband always says, I'm telling you, if I would just start importing horse hair, we'd be good to go. We'd make a lot of money. Right. So I get that question. I mean, th- thankfully, uh, you know, I, I don't have people that come here and then, and then hear the price and then, kind of say, oh, it's 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 not in my budget or something. Generally people that come here know, understand and appreciate what we're doing. There are those that don't. So so a lot of times I would just respond and you know and you tell them the price and they don't respond. You know, I mean I wish people would just say, thank you very much, you know, or or or, or you know, but but you know, people have this have this way to just like ask and then, you know, but majority of the people come through. Like all things, you know, you just have to, if there's 10 inquiries, the few are the right customers and, you know, um, mm-hmm. but it takes, takes hours and hours and hours of work. Um, the fabrics are expensive. The fabrics cost more than your regular retail suit that some people are usually, you know, used to spend. How expensive? How, what are the most expensive fabrics? Give me like a price range. One of the most expensive. I'm, I'm, a, balab- I'm a big balabas. I want you to make me a beautiful suit, like a Zenya suit. I want hand stitching. Obviously, it's going to obviously be hand stitched, but I want a beautiful silk lining. I want it to be cashmere. I want it to be um, a modern print that just came out, so it's fashionable and I'm on trend. And I'm a tall person, and it's going to be plenty of fabric, and I need it done in about three months' time. You know, how much is this gorgeous suit going to cost me? And you know what? While we're here, you might as well make me three shirts. So if it's if it's you know if it's fully handmade, um, and you mentioned cashmere, so cashmere is an extra detail there. So our general our bespoke suits. Okay, so if you're gonna if you're gonna add. Um, cashmere to that uh, if it's a full cashmere suit and for instance now they're making summer cashmere suits so the cashmere is so fine it weighs like 230 grams or 200 grams so that's going to cost a lot more what's the advantage of cashmere if it's not meant to be warm the feel feels amazing okay feels amazing okay um yeah and we we make you know we're, we're actually working on on a few pieces right now um vicuña which is the most luxurious fabrics in the world. Um, they run around three to $4,000 a yard of Vicuña. And who wears those suits? People that love clothing and have a lot of clothing. And, and they want live to, in the Gulf? <laughs> yeah, they, you know, that's probably a lot of the Vicuña is probably sold there um, or made for client people. It's there. Wild. But, but uh, you have, yeah, you have 
you know, this world is a very interesting world. And, and you have people that you'll never believe that have this sense of appreciation for the craft and for fabrics and collect fabrics and, and love fabrics and, and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on clothing. Now, most people are not like that. But for those that aren't and just appreciate a good suit, understand that it takes, besides the fabric costs and the canvassing and the threads, using silk threads and every buttonhole is handmade and that takes around 30 minutes per buttonhole. And you have around 12 to 13 buttonholes on each jacket and that's just the buttonholes and, and the horn buttons and horn buttons are not cheap and, and we don't use any plastic buttons and, and, uh, and the fitting process and the work hours. For a bespoke suit, it could take around 80 to 100 hours of work I mean, do the math at 6,500. Um, it should be a lot more. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It, I'm hearing it's, you. It's, I hear you. That's the, it's a very rare art. It's a craft. Um, and I understand it's not for everybody. Um, it's the most luxurious way of making a suit, but it's, it's also a suit that's made uh, that will stand the test of time. That, that is your style that it doesn't fall apart or, or, you know, if something is wrong, we're always here. There's that relationship with the, with the tailor. You're, you know, part of the bespoke suit is that relationship with the tailor. People, people want that. And that's a big part of it, right? It's your, you choose your tailor. You have that experience. You enjoy that experience. You come back, Mm -hmm. you have things made, you take it in, you let it out. If you lost weight, we recut it. That whole relationship, we take, care of you know for me i have customers that you know i've taken shoe shopping i i i buy their undergarments for them their socks and take care of everything all their clothing their pajamas the you know so it's that relationship and that that we that we aim to achieve but when it comes to the actual garment it's time and love and that goes into it so that's that's really what you're you know what you're paying for um and obviously for at the end and product so much more. To, to, yeah. to look really really good and feel good clearly you have a lot you have your work cut out for you pardon the pun um <laughs> <laughs> it just feels i was reminded as you were talking two things first of all we went to london for my anniversary about four years ago my husband and i and because it was right before covid and the hotel had no reservations they gave us the penthouse so we were on one park lane, is it 49 park mm-hmm. lane and on one park lane in this magnificent hotel with heated floors and a bathtub menu. And I open up the cabinets in the, in the master bedroom and there's two pairs of pajamas. And I'm like, honey, we got free pajamas. Right. And they're like these very posh English pajamas, mm-hmm. like tailored, you know, and I'm looking and I'm literally about to rip open the plastic. And then it says somewhere like 380 pounds to, and they're yours. (laughs) I was like, are you kidding? I'm sleeping in something I bought in Target, you know? But that reminded me that you do feel like a king and queen when you can wear things that make you feel like you deserve it, you know? Right, And if you could afford it, if if you could afford it, you should definitely do the right thing for your image and for your wardrobe. Um, Last question. I'm sorry, that was a little like belabored, but you know, I'm trying to kind of wrap this all together because at the end of the day, we're just trying to share with my audience a little bit about the experience of being a tailor and what it brings to your life. And it sounds like it brings a lot. And and, um, I'm glad to hear that you have such a positive attitude about it. Last but not least, because this is such a niche career that you have, what advice would you give to someone listening who has a child or they themselves might be interested 
in pursuing a career in tailoring or starting some sort of business where they can create using that skill. It's not something that they teach in the yeshivas. It's not something they teach in the high schools. It's not something that we're teaching our children. I know that my mother-in-law is a seamstress. And when anything, a button falls off, I send it with my husband to her house. So it's a long, it's, it's a law skill. So what advice do you have for people who are still passionate about it? Should they pursue it or is one Yassi tipping from enough? No, there's, I, I, I feel that there's, you know, you mentioned earlier that we're going into this in this direction of like more casual clothing, but actually there is at the same time. Um, and I think the more we go towards like robotics and, and, and AI and, and, and there's going to be less and less of that interaction with humans, I feel like there will be that growing need for, for human interaction and experience. And there is. Um, and I, th- I feel like people... More and more, actually, a younger crowd, younger generation, they want to know where, you know, how it's made, where it's made, and 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 have that relationship with someone. And I feel like it's it's there is growth there. It's not um, yes, it's a dying art because the craftsmen are few, and the reason why they're few is because it's labor intensive. It looks glamorous, and. For my Instagram, I may make it, you know, make it look glamorous, but that's because I really enjoy it and I'm really passionate about it, and I love what I do. But it is a lot of work. It is hard work, and we take um, interns and, you know, from different from the fashion schools and apprentices sometimes, and and you kind of see through, you know, there there are those. You know, you could see who has it and who doesn't. Going to stand the test of time. Well, who's really looking and appreciate the craft, and and or just wants to be a fashion designer, and sewing is really not for them, and and they don't want to have the patience to do it. It it's you know, imagine sewing for twelve hours. Uh, you know, do you have the patience? Could you do this? Could you really do this? And to start off, you have to probably take some courses to really understand and see if you enjoy it and if you want to do it and then maybe work for you know someone that does alterations and you have to be able to do a lot of boring work right i was going to say a lot is focused on the construction i know like when people want to be recording artists they want to be a singer they don't realize that i spend 10 hours a day editing minutia on my computer and this could be yeah this is not for everybody but you are pursuing a goal and the goal in the creative realm anyway is to put something out in the universe that wasn't there before, something that has your signature on it, something that does good, and you repeat that cycle over and over while your wife spends your money. That's really what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> you just put that in there, right? It's knowing, trying to, taking on different things to get to to understand what it is that you're passionate about and trying to find that passion early. I worked in all sorts of jobs and, and, and also all sorts of jobs to get that money to, to pay for that tailoring. And so you have to kind of figure it out, but test different things in order to get to, because you don't want to kind of, you know, start going to a school of, of tailoring for four or five years or, you know, commit to an apprenticeship if it's not really what you, what you mm-hmm. want. So um, mm-hmm. you got to just kind of test different things and, and try to find that exact and, and in the fashion industry itself there's so many different parts in general and this is just one part a very important part an old craft um that's alive and and will grow but for those that actually want to take it on there is room there's plenty of room and um there's plenty of people out there that are willing and enjoy 
dressing up still to today and won't give that up give that up and i feel like there's a lot of potential for the future but you have to have patience and put in that hard work many 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 hours and years and days and nights to get there absolutely and that's when you become somebody who Ralph Lauren notices <laughs> their suit and says that is a nice suit Everyone um, who has worn your clothes and worked with you has always sung your praises. So I was glad to have this opportunity to talk to you. And um, yeah, will I be making custom clothes anytime soon? No, I am a Blundstones jean skirt sweatshirt person, much to my parents' dismay. But I definitely appreciate a, a fine suit. And so, so long as we can afford it, Hashem should bless the Jewish people to be able to look like a million bucks, feel like a million bucks, and have a million bucks. So... Thank you very much, Yossi. I will let you continue to do the fine work that you are. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure being on your podcast. Thank you. So there you have it. Episode 97 of the Weekly Squeeze, sponsored by Tovito. Don't forget to check out my show note links for 10% off your subscription. Leave me a five-star rating and let your friends know all about the show that brings you news, religion, politics, humor, and everything you love about Jewish podcasting. Thank you for being here. We will see you and you and you and you on Thursday.